Welcome to another episode of In Theory, the podcast of the JHI blog. I'm Dishak Arnadjani, a PhD candidate in history at Princeton University. In this episode, I sat down with Professor Priyam Gopal, reader in Anglophone and related literature at Cambridge University. Her interests are primarily in colonial and post-colonial literature and theory, as well as the politics and culture of empire and globalization. Her new book, out now from Verso, is titled Insurgent Empire, Anti-Colonial Resistance and British Dissent, and traces various sites of struggle against the British Empire from the 19th century onwards to lay bare the dialogic and dialectical relationship between the concept of freedom and its related political practice in the metropole and in the colonies. So how did you come to working on this project in the first place? Um, well, there were two things really that I think uh, fed into my development of this project. Uh, one is that my early work, uh, my first book, was on dissident movements um, in the context of nation formation in India. And so I had a long-standing interest in dissent and uh, traditions which kind of questioned the norm and the mainstream in, in, in national context. Um, I found myself, however, when I uh, got involved in, in doing a, a bit of radio and television in Britain, I found myself called upon to engage with the question of empire. So um, in, a, in an episode that I narrate at the beginning of the book, um, I talk about going to the BBC and being part of a debate on empire, which very quickly uh, became heated. Um, and subsequent to that episode, um, I found myself getting increasingly involved in uh, such public discussions as there were in Britain around empire. And I say that because by and large, uh, we don't really have debates uh, here. They, they tend to you know, basically be set pieces where uh, balance is taken uh, as to whether you know, empire was good or bad, what was good, what was bad. There really aren't very honest searching discussions on empire. So I had found myself wanting to write for a while um, about the British Empire and, and kind of contribute to doing a counter history to the one in the public domain. Um, but I didn't want to do a straightforward history. And I found myself, uh, in a sense, bringing together two interests, the one in dissidents, which I had looked at earlier in the context of India. And I decided that I uh, wanted to look at critics of empire in Britain because it was clear to me that uh, despite very popular claims, it wasn't the case that everybody in the heyday of empire in the 19th century uh, was on board with the project of empire. So I found myself becoming increasingly interested in British dissidents and British critics of empire. Um, but I also found myself kind of contesting the idea that influence uh, in ideological uh, and intellectual and political terms was always from the metropole, that is from Britain out into the periphery, the colonies. Um, and I started to wonder about whether there was reverse influence, whether in fact British critics of empire or people who were inclined to raise questions about the imperial project were doing so off their own bat, or whether they were actually finding their thought processes and questions prompted uh, by anything. And I found that they were prompted uh, by 
rebellions, uh, resistance movements, campaigning against the empire in the colonies. So I kind of brought two things together. I brought the question of dissidents uh, alongside the question of influence. And my main argument in the book, therefore, is that there was um, a minority tradition, but an important tradition of dissidents on empire ranging across the 19th century well into the 20th. Uh, but also arguing that this tradition was very influenced by resistance and rebellion in the colonies. So it is a kind of a counter history of empire, but looking at it through the perspective of dissidents and dissidents. Mm -hmm. and, and when it comes to your historical cases, I mean, I think it's really striking that they range from India to Kenya to Jamaica to Egypt to uh, the, the British metropole itself. Um, and you're writing that these forms of struggle, and, and I'm quoting, at once asserted cultural specificities and made insistent claims upon shared humanity. Uh, in other words, writing about particularities as well as universal concepts or, or, or politics that we will talk about in a, in a little bit. Um, but could you tell us a little bit about how, as a writer then, um, especially when your book isn't, of course, a straightforward narrative history, as, as you just said, how as a writer were you approaching that problem of moving from place to place, moving from register to register. I think this is where um, I found myself very much approaching historical materials as a literary critic. Um, I had wondered for some time why there hadn't been um, a kind of counter history to the influential popular version put out, certainly in the British public sphere, uh, by people like Neil Ferguson, uh, who were essentially apologists for empire. And I often wondered why historians didn't really take that on uh, head on. And I suppose I, I, I realized at some point that historians, uh, for the most part, are very careful about historical sweep, and they tend to work in, in more concentrated, shorter periods. They tend to write continuous histories. Um, and where there is world history, it's a very different kind uh, of approach uh, to materials. And I decided that what I could do as a literary critic was not feel the burden of a particular kind of chronological uh, narration and a particular kind of uh, uh, um, deep work in uh, a single context or a, or a uh, circumscribed historical moments. So I partly approached the question uh, as a kind of, a, and I think I said this in the introduction, as a kind of epic canvas on which I could draw one arc um, of, of influence and, and um, a, a kind of uh, dissent, uh, an intellectual political inheritance, but also look at the incidents and characters as short stories on that epic canvas. So I was able to, in a sense, bring the freedom of a literary critic to textual archival materials and, and create a history that is that does take place um, and unfolds chronologically over a hundred year span, but not necessarily feel uh, the imperative to uh, to write a chronological history as such. So um, I was able to be able to, to kind of draw out specificities to incidents and people, but put them on an epic Canvas, uh, which I suppose you would call global history, but in, in my case, I, 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 I make no claims to global history, but I'm saying that one can look at these specific uh, particular 
historically contextualized incidents in a wider frame and think about uh, how they might relate to each other when juxtaposed. And I think because of that method, um, this object emerges in the book, uh, something that you call insurgent or rebel consciousness. And it's something that, as you write about, comes together as a result of both direct connections between groups of dissidents uh, like the Chartists and the 1857 rebels, for example, um, but also comes about through less direct connections and more of either an ethos or a politics that emerges out of these colonial crises. Um, and I was really struck by the use of the, you know, the term insurgent or global consciousness in the context of such concrete yeah. politics as well, because we don't often see the concrete practices of dissent and something like an insurgent or rebel consciousness spoken about in the same breath. Could you tell us a little bit about what you mean by that kind of consciousness and, and how you saw it coming about in the, in the texts that you were looking at? Yeah, so insurgents is a word I used because I think it covers a multitude of impulses and actions. Um, so that insurgents could refer to rebellion, it might refer to revolution in certain contexts, um, or, and might, or it might sometimes simply refer to agitations and demonstrations and, and kind of smaller acts. Uh, of resistance. I also use the word insurgents partly because I wanted to uh, reclaim it from imperial discourses of counterinsurgency, which historians are much more familiar with, certainly in part from the subaltern school, uh, where <clears throat> there is an, an attempt made in the early days to kind of recover uh, resistance and uh, resistant and rebel consciousnesses from uh, what Ranajit Guha calls the prose of counterinsurgency. Insurgency is actually an interesting term because it is frequently used in colonial discourse. You know, so insurgents are people who are not seen as legitimate belligerents, as you might have in a situation of war between sovereign states. Um, <clears throat> the the unlawful nature of insurgency and the, and, and the very many different ways in, one, in which one might break the law and be insurgent interested me. Um, so I think that, it, it again, it was a freeing term because I, I don't think uh, that insurgency takes just the one form. Um, and I also think that insurgent consciousness uh, can be gleaned from a variety of texts and a variety of acts. So that, for instance, looking at the rebels uh, in Jamaica in 1865. Now, um, I use the word rebels, but actually, uh, again, insurgents might be a better term. S some were rebels, others were insurgents, others were agitators. Um, and what you see happening there is the emergence of a refusal of a particular kind of political economy that has been put into place by post-slavery and colonial governance post-slavery. Um, and it's a very interesting moment because the demands do not necessarily take the form of a demand for sovereignty. The insurgence is... Uh, conscious, it's active, it is um, planned in many cases, um, but there is clearly a, 
a consciousness that is one of refusing the conditions in which people find themselves. Um, and insurgency there uh, refers, I think, uh, to the refusal of certain kinds of conditions of living, including certain conditions in which wage labor is extracted. And that refusal uh, to me, which isn't a demand for sovereignty, it's not even a demand for the end of colonial government, it is a demand to be uh, allowed to secede from the political economy of mercantile capitalism and plantation labor. So that, that's why I think insurgents uh, is a word I found more useful than uh, specific uh, claims around rebellion or revolution, although those are there. Uh, but I think insurgents, again, allowed me to free up the canvas to include, include you know, kinds of actions that one might not uh, identify if one was trying to write a history of a particular rebellion or a revolution, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it does. And, and and that leads me to wonder then um, how you get from the kinds of emerging insurgent and rebel consciousness that you're talking about um, in the in the second half of the 19th century to in the later chapters um, what you what you kind of call sol solidarity basically. So you write, for instance, mm -hmm. that uh, quote far from neutralizing the other within a safe mode of difference, resistance brought home the fact of a commonality that could not be contained by the familiar disposition of benevolence. What was required was solidarity. So, what what is it about kind of the move to the 19th century to the 20th that bridges that gap where the demand in the in the example you just gave us from from jamaica was leaving a particular system of labor and mercantile capitalism and then becomes one that is maybe more grounded in the vocabularies that we would ascribe to the kind of capital p politics of the 20th century so what did you see going on as we move from from the one to the other yeah, so one interesting thread for me was that what we now call solidarity and what we theorize as solidarity is a strand um, that goes all the way back to the, you know, to the, the starting moment for me, 1857, but actually probably precedes that even in, uh, you know, in anti-slavery. And here is the idea that uh, when people resist and when people are uh, insurgent in whatever form that insurgency might take, um, it creates a moment of recognition. Um, and recognition is important because insurgents, um, along with being unlawful, are also people who are not given recognition by the state, uh, by the structures of governance, but are claiming recognition. And I'm saying that um, in just the way that the uh, Indian rebels of 1857 and the Jamaican uh, uh, insurgents of 1865 were demanding a certain kind of recognition, they found that recognition in people of a dissident bent. So Ernest Jones in 1857, um, writing to his fellow chartists and, uh, and, and the working class people of Britain and saying, look, what the Indians are doing out there in India is exactly what we have been trying to do as chartists in Britain. And they are making claims upon our fellow feeling. Um, 
fellow feeling is, is the term that crops up in some of the literature of the 19th century, and fellow feeling is what we translate into solidarity, uh, versions of solidarity in, in the 20th century. Um, when, when the uh, Jamaican insurgents make their claims, much of it, you know, making its way back to Britain through precisely the prose of counterinsurgency. Again, uh, you see, particularly in kind of radical quarters in Britain, uh, the claims to sympathy, uh, claims to uh, fellow feeling that are elaborated in uh, in the in the British public sphere through uh, dissidence and interrogation, and also asking. Uh, you know, what is being done in our name, uh, you know, the repression that empire entailed and the bloodshed that that entailed when insurgency did crop up um, also raised questions about what was being done uh, in the name of ordinary British people to these faraway uh, populations. So I think that what I'm suggesting is that from the idea of fellow feeling and sympathy in the 19th century to solidarity and what, you know, today we might call allyship, um, there is a running thread that, you know, people might be very different. They might be living somewhere else. They might practice a different culture. Uh, they might have different priorities from us. But we can recognize in their insurgency uh, a, a, a fellow feeling. And we can, we can see commonality in the fact of insurgency. It's really striking that, you know, in the 19th century, you've got liberals and radicals writing about, uh, you know, uh, about India saying, well, how would we feel? if French ships sailed up the Thames and uh, asked to establish a factory, and next thing you know, they've taken over half of England. So this kind of insistence on uh, finding common ground, on imagining commonality, I think is very interesting. And I think that that's something uh, that really does uh, uh, kind of slide into the 20th century from the incidents that I look at in the 19th century, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And on on precisely that point, I wanted to ask about a, a process that you, you mentioned a little while ago, but that you term reverse tutelage, um, whereby white mm -hmm. British travelers are finding themselves in situations of unrest, uh, to, the, to say the least, in the colonies, and then become radicalized by that experience and, and use the term learning. They're learning from that experience. And so alongside, for instance, the insurgents that you describe, can you tell us a bit more about what this concept or, or process rather of, of reverse tutelage is doing in your book? Yeah. Because that seems okay. like a significant um, sort of hinge between the, the two spheres you're talking about. Yes. Okay. So um, part of that uh, conceptualization of reverse tutelage is a pushback against the idea of tutelage, which on the one hand is peddled uh, by uh, sympathizers of empire and colonialism, the idea that, uh, and it's very much present in, in present day international uh, politics discourse as well, which is you know, that the West has much to teach the rest of the world and that the colonial enterprises and it is a process of uh, tutelage uh, whereby 
Britain and or Europe goes out into the colonies and teaches people how to be good citizens, how to have, how to embrace development, how to be uh, civilized, how to be uh, uh, a part of of uh, a political economy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But there's also a version, I think, in in post-colonial studies, which is the field that I broadly work within, which is to say uh, that uh, Caliban. Uh, you know, uh, Shakespeare's cursing, uh, 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 how shall I term him up? Uh, he's, you know, he's kind of cannibal, savage figure. Uh, but Caliban learns language from Prospero and speaks back to the empire. But what I fa- find interesting about the, the ways in which Caliban is used is this it still enshrines the notion that tutelage comes from Prospero, tutelage comes from the West, uh, so that the colonized might might articulate anti-colonialism and resistance to empire, but they do so because they've been taught the language uh, from the West, and, and, they, and then they speak back uh, to the colonizer. And I found myself wondering if it was always the case that that was the direction of influence, that uh, uh, the colonized learnt uh, how to be free from the colonizer. And I found um, that that sometimes it was quite the opposite, that in fact, um, you had people like Wilfred Blunt, uh, who I talk about at, at some length uh, in the 19th century, who went out to uh, both India and Egypt um, and found himself learning from those travels, found himself learning from witnessing unrest, witnessing, uh, in the case of Egypt, um, a full-blown revolution. And uh, what I do in his case is, of course, I track the change from someone who's a kind of benevolent imperialist to someone who becomes a passionate anti-colonialist by the end of the 19th century. And the question I ask there is, how does this change happen? Why does he become, uh, you know, someone who even ends up calling himself uh, an Egyptian nationalist? Um, And I, the argument I make there is that this is partly from a process that we can talk about as reverse tutelage, where British dissidents learn uh, what the problems with the imperial project are um, and why and how to articulate a critique of imperialism from those who are already resisting uh, empire and resisting colonialism. In, in Wilfred Blunt's case, it was um, the, uh, the, you know, the revolution in Egypt unfolding, which he witnessed, but it was also because he, uh, you know, hung out, as it were, with Islamic intellectuals and reformers at the Azhar uh, in Cairo. And he actually talks in very explicit terms about learning. Um, and then in the very early part of the 20th century, I look at a bunch of other travelers, um, the most famous of whom will be Kihadi. Uh, one of the founding members of the British Labour Party. Um, And he uh, writes these travelogues where, again, you can track a kind of learning process uh, that he undergoes. Um, And that, when he comes back to uh, Britain, is parlayed into some of his parliamentary interventions. So reverse tutelage is, is, on the one hand, it's a way of saying tutelage often took place in a different direction from the one that we're familiar with, but also, um, I, I think, a way um, of tracking how people uh, became critical about empire, how people started to recognize uh, uh, others living in, in faraway places and in very different kinds of cultures um, as 
of as fellow human beings uh, in whose you know with whom you might make common cause. Mm-hmm. And I think it's clear from what you just said, but as well as how how we began um, that your work is speaking to a number of different constituencies, both inside of the academy as well as in in the public sphere. Um, to in, in speaking to what you call the the common sense understanding of the role of empire in British and global political and social life. Um, could you say more about what you mean by that kind of common sense understanding? You're kind of very clear about the fact that it doesn't very doesn't make very much sense at all a lot of the time. Um, but if, if some of our conversations are kind of internal and inside the academy, um, how are we, how, how is your book, for instance, kind of seeking to bridge that gap and talk to somebody who understands these things in kind of common sense or commonsensical terms? Yeah, I, I mean, I didn't set out necessarily to write a, a public facing book. Um, it's become in some ways a public facing book because of the intense interest there is uh, in, uh, you know, many, many sections of uh, uh, British readership or British public sphere uh, on the question of empire, particularly uh, in the wake of Brexit. And I think that the way in which I would wish, I think, the book to be uh, looked at is as a book that is pushing back against dominant mythologies. Towards the end of the book, I talk about C.L.R. James, um, who was who was one of the key figures in, in the second half of the book, and uh, James's kind of recounting of the ways in which the empire as a mythology, uh, and it comes with all kinds of uh, uh, kind of assumptions, uh, that one of the more dangerous aspects of empire mythology is that it encourages. Uh, British people to think about themselves as givers um, and as, uh, as originators of great ideas and as givers of development and givers of values. Um, and he says that this myth that, uh, you know, we are the givers, that is the British people are the givers and other people are the takers. Uh, he says that that is damaging not just for, uh, you know, Britain's relationship with the formerly colonized Uh, and indeed other parts of the world more generally, but also it's very damaging for people to only think about themselves as givers, um, as being put upon, as being uh, taken advantage of. And I think you can see some of that in the discourse around Brexit, that uh, Brexiteering, as it were, uh, is again invoking what uh, Brexiteers like to call Empire 2.0, the idea that Britain is unique, Britain is special, Britain always gives while the world takes. Uh, British, you know, British values are were all made in Britain, and then the rest of the world uh, has to learn and embrace British values. And I think that what I would like, uh, precisely in looking at questions uh, of reverse tutelage uh, and fellow feeling, and looking at how dissidents were influenced by uh, insurgency uh, and resistance, I would like there to be an understanding that, you know, uh, that Britain is made by the world um, and made by anti-colonialism as much as it was uh, made or unmade by empire and imperialism. So, uh, again, I think that that in terms of what what the book might do in a public facing sense, I think 
uh, I, I'd like to think that it's uh, helping to puncture some of the mythologies. I mean, someone said uh, on Twitter the other day, they said, you know, whatever else we might do now that this book is out, let us never again say that uh, back in the day, uh, everybody was okay with the empire. It's very clear that they were not. And that, that alone to me is, is, uh, is very heartening uh, because towards the end of the book, I talk about the ways in which any criticism of empire today is always dismissed as being anachronistic. And I think and I hope that the book shows that that is not the case, that even in the heyday of empire, even in the heyday of someone as, uh, you know, as, as uniquely, uh, seemingly uniquely uh, horrible as Cecil Rhodes, uh, that people in Rhodes's day had a problem with him as much as, you know, the, the students who uh, are part of the Rhodes Must Fall movement feel about him, that there was never a complete uh, consent and conformity on the question of empire. Mm -hmm. And I think alongside precisely the conversation that, that you're talking about and with which you end the book, just picking up on the CLR James thread, you're very clear at the beginning and throughout that this work comes out of um, sort of crucial theoretical interventions that have been made um, it, by, by people in a variety of disciplines, for instance, on the question of archival silences made by Michel Rolf Trio, or on the question of um, thinking dialectically between Hegel and Haiti, uh, the, the intervention made by Susan Buck Moores, um, which, which kind of made me think about this, the particular place of your book between uh, British imperial historiography and post-colonial and other types of theory, which you are, are very clear about at the beginning. Um, could you could you tell us a little bit more about that sort of the either methodologically or kind of in terms of your, your positioning where those theoretical interventions have brought uh, this this book or, or this intervention of yours? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, one of the ideas I've been struggling with for some time, um, possibly, uh, you know, uh, over my career so far, um, is the relationship between the particular and uh, the universal. I mean, you know, if we can take for granted uh, that we are all post-positivist, that we are uh, not empiricist, even though we might have um, and should have a regard for the empirical. Um, the question really that uh, uh, I've grappled with on and off is the question of what is the relationship between you know, specificities, cultural, political, historical, um, and something that we might be able to make uh, uh, think about in global and universal terms. Um, I've never um, uh, really bought anti-foundationalism, radical anti-foundationalism, um, nor am I uh, a fan, and again, never have been, uh, of radical alterity. So if you are not um, an anti-foundationalist, and if you are not going to embrace radical alterity, which I think uh, does take us into all kinds of dead ends, uh, not least political and and um, uh, 
ethical dead ends. Um, where, what do we do? What do we? Uh, how do we conceptualize the relationship between the two? And I, Susan Buck Morris's point about whether it might be possible to not discard universal history, but reconstitute it on a very different basis. That resonated with me. Equally, um, Edward Said's also, I think, refusal after Orientalism uh, of uh, varieties of of post-structuralism and their kind of radical anti-foundationalism or radical uh, linguistic uh, nature, uh, that also resonated with me. Said ends up resolving it in terms of uh, what he calls critical humanism in his uh, posthumously published lectures. Um, I think I think the term humanism uh, I think leads us into all kinds of difficulties just because of of the historical baggage uh, that it comes with. But I am I think sympathetic with Said's ideas that uh, we have to find a way to be able to talk about cultural and human commonalities without. Uh, for one minute, uh, eliding historical, cultural, linguistic uh, specificities. Um, so I think broadly, I I would place myself in a formation, uh, you know, that that Buckmore's through your side uh, or all part of um, where there is deep attention to historical cultural specificity, um, but not a retrenchment, uh, as it were, into um, infinite particulars uh, and radical alterity. And actually, I found, you know, when I when I went back to reading Aimé Césaire around the time that I was writing the book, um, that he too uh, talks about uh, wanting to hold on, even as he fiercely criticizes uh, colonial versions of humanism. Uh, he talks about wanting uh, a universal that is rich with all that is particular. Um, and so I think I think theoretically, um, I'm still grappling with this question of uh, how one might uh, engage with the particular without necessarily uh, uh, dismissing the universal and, and what really emerges as it were in the dialectic of the universal and the particular. And I think one sort of central concept around which your book is oriented, and I think which shows an, an enactment of, of precisely what you're talking about, is the idea of, of freedom, um, right? And what you call it, it's cognates being emancipation, self-determination, uh, you know, sovereignty, and it's and the fact that the name by which this concept is called sort of follows the kinds of political aspirations and more specifically the claims that are made on whatever it is that is um, oppressing or making unfree in that particular situation. Um, could you could you tell us, we're almost out of time, but, but, but before we wrap up, um, could you tell us a little bit about kind of how that concept was helpful or how holding all of these struggles together with a concept at the center is fruitful for enacting precisely the kind of sort of, uh, you know, methodological creativity that you were describing a, a moment ago. Yeah, I, I mean, you're asking me specifically about the concept of freedom. Uh, am I right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, the thing about freedom, uh, I think you're exactly right. It's it, it's it is very much an idea that uh, you can situate uh, in the dialectic of the. Uh, universal 
and the particular, right? And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm arguing that on the one hand, there is something like a, a universal urge to resist tyranny, to resist oppression, uh, and to demand certain kinds of uh, basic human rights. And I'm using that uh, not with a capital H, a capital R, but just kind of rights that human beings uh, want for themselves. Having said that, the specific demands and the specific ways in which they're articulated are heavily historically and culturally determined. As I said a few minutes ago, uh, demands in many of these insurgencies were not for um, sovereignty. They were not even for self-determination. They often were not asking for the end of uh, colonial rule, but they were articulating, uh, depending on context, uh, a kind of large number of uh, uh, needs that one might associate with the idea of freedom. So, you know, certain kinds of labor conditions, uh, refusal of racism, certain forms of land occupation, uh, refusal of of taxes uh, that were perceived as uh, unjust, demands for wages and conditions in w- and working conditions uh, in which one might work with dignity and 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 earn enough to make uh, a living. These were often all theorized uh, precisely in terms of freedom, including uh, you know demands for representation uh, within government. So. What I say is that when when you look at the book as a whole, each of the chapters and each of the stories is about a different kind of demand um, and as a different kind of, uh, if you like, even a set of demands, depending on the context. But so they're not always the same. Uh, You know, the demands of a freed slave and their descendant in 1865 Jamaica is different from uh, Indian textile workers who are striking in the 1920s, often against Gandhi's explicit wishes. Um, The causes are different, the situations are different, the language in which those demands are couched is different. But what you do see is a shared impulse uh, to resist tyranny and to make certain kinds of demands that go uh, with ideas about what a decent human life is it should look like. So, uh, yeah, I am making the argument that, that one can again see here the dialectic of the, uh, the universal uh, freedom as a universal, uh, but the particulars are very dependent on context. Right, of course. Um, and I'm afraid with, with that, we'll have to, to end our conversation. Um, but before we do, I just wanted to thank you so much for, for taking the time uh, to talk with me today about your really wonderful book. Thank you for having me.